This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 29. And as you make your way to the 29th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we actually find ourselves in the middle of Job's final defense. As a matter of fact, it was back in chapter 26, that's when Job began to present his, his final defense to his friends. And the wrap-up of this rebuttal, well, it's found in chapter 31. And so here we are in Job chapter 29. We find ourselves in the middle of Job's final argument. And as we consider the content that's found here in our text tonight, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Job was actually helping his three friends to understand that their assessment of his situation was entirely incorrect. And while they truly believed that Job was being punished for some sort of unrepentant sin in his life, well, Job assured them that he was still a servant who was humbly submitting himself to the Lord. Uh, But now before we get into our text tonight, it'll help us to remember that Job began this final defense by first acknowledging the sovereignty of our Creator. And after that, Job then shifted his attention from the exaltation of the Almighty to the confusion that was causing him to conclude that the Lord was punishing him and without a just cause. Well, then Job shifted his attention from his own confusion to the source of true wisdom, which comes from the Lord. And after acknowledging that the Lord is the source of true wisdom, it's now here in our text tonight where we find Job confessing the fact that he was struggling to hear from the Lord. And the reason why, as we'll see tonight, well, it's because of his backward focus. Now, with all this in mind, let's pick up our study of this incredible book. I want you to turn your attention now to the argument that we find here in Job chapter 29. You would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we learn that Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness." Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, and when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's looking backwards, rather than focusing forwards, rather than looking to the finish, uh, forward to the finish line of faith, He's looking back and he's longing for those days when everything in his mind was good and well. And, and as he reminisced about the good old days, you know, when the Lord was watching over his house, Job was simultaneously falling into the common delusion that leads us to believe that hard times and difficult days, well, they're evidence that the favor of God is no longer upon us. In order to address this delusion. I want to take a closer look at Job's complaint found here in the beginning of this chapter. If you would, let's back up and take another look at verse 2. Here again, Job declares, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. In other words, Job had come to this conclusion that the days when the Lord was caring for him, well, they were gone. He had come to the conclusion that the Lord was was no longer leading him with his spiritual light. And instead, he believed that the Lord was allowing him 
to suffer in spiritual darkness as he continued to sink into this state of deep depression. Not only that, but Job also felt like the trials that he was enduring was evidence that the Lord was no longer with him. I want to consider again how he puts it here, beginning at verse 4. Here again he declares, Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Here in these verses we find Job, he's thinking back to the days of his prime when his house was filled with kids, when his cattle was producing an abundance of cream so that it was just flowing down his steps, and when his olive groves were producing an abundance of oil so that everything was soaked in olive oil all around his home. And, and, and in the mind of Job, the, the kids and, and the, the, the cow's milk and, and the olive oil and all of this was evidence of God's blessing on his life. He saw all of this as the, the evidence that the Almighty was blessing his home. But then came the day when, well, his kids tragically perished. His livestock was stolen. His servants had been killed and kidnapped and no longer working there in the olive groves. And it was at that point in time when Job began to believe that the Lord was no longer with him. You see, if all of these earthly material blessings are the evidence of God's presence and favor, then the absence of those things would then what? It would be the evidence that God's no longer with him. Job had incorrectly come to the conclusion that the benefits of earthly blessings is always the evidence that God is with you. And so the lack of prosperity would then also be proof that the Lord is no longer near, but that's not always the case. And yet, it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who have been duped by the same delusional doctrine. When everything's working out great, well, that must be God. And if times are hard and, and days are difficult, well, then God must be gone. Where's God? Where's God in the difficult days? He must be somewhere else. And it's sad that many have been duped with this delusional doctrine. And one reason why is because they've embraced the beliefs of prosperity preachers who assure us that the evidence of the Lord's blessings can be seen in our financial portfolio. At the same time, these same prosperity preachers insist that those who are poor must be failing to walk by faith and therefore they're not being blessed by the Lord. Here's how the false prophet Kenneth Copeland explains it. And I quote him here. Poverty is not a money problem. Poverty is a problem with the curse. But you have been redeemed from the curse of the law. So rejoice and walk in it, saith the Lord. For your day and your hour has come, and things will work now far more abundantly than they ever have in the past. That's right. According to Kenneth Copeland, those who are poor are living under the curse and failing to walk by faith. And much like Job, Kenneth Copeland believes that those who are truly trusting in the Lord will always enjoy an abundance of worldly wealth. And that's why Job was struggling to understand you know, his own situation because he had been walking by faith with the Lord and yet now he's missing out on the abundance. What happened? Now listen, one reason for why I reject the false doctrines of the prosperity gospel? Well, it's because 
it's not biblical. It's not a biblical doctrine, so therefore I don't believe in it. Case in point, let's consider what James writes in James chapter 2. It's verse 5 where he declares this. He asks, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, according to the prosperity preachers, those who are poor are failing to walk in faith. But according to James, the poor believer is the one who tends to have more faith than wealthier believers. It's not always the case, but it's certainly uh, there's an argument for this. And, and one reason why is because, listen, wealthy believers are able to just rely on their cash when it comes to difficult days, when it comes to things that they want. Well, if they can afford to just go buy it without you know, the green light from God, they can just go buy it. They don't have to wait. They don't have to rely on their faith. They don't have to rely on their prayers. They can just rely on their finances. Whereas the poor believer, they don't have the cash to go out and just buy whatever they want. They don't have the cash to, to just make the moves that they want to make. And so they must rely on the perfect, perfect provision of the Lord, which is why you know, uh, poverty tends to, to result in uh, Christians who have a stronger faith in the Lord, relying on the Lord as we've been you know, told to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Wealthy believers don't have to have to pray that and actually mean it because they can afford daily bread. Those who are poor, sometimes you can't afford daily bread, so you got to pray and you got to trust that the Lord is going to provide that daily provision. And so with that being the case, you know, Kenneth Copeland and the the other prosperity preachers like him, uh, they're completely wrong when they inform us that poverty is a problem with the curse. No, not at all. Sometimes it's a blessing for those that the Lord wants to grow in faith. I like the way that Paul addresses this issue in Philippians chapter 4 here where he, de- he declares this, I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at your last, uh, at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing the way that that he was able to accomplish his ministry, and even during the days when his financial situation was, well, lacking. And while the prosperity preachers like Copeland assure us that true believers will always abound in worldly wealth, Paul assures us that the Lord is actually able to, uh, uh, to enable us so that we can accomplish our calling. And yes, even in those times when we are financially abased, during those days when we don't have the finances necessary to accomplish God's calling, Paul says, hey, God was there to, to meet the need. And so he learned how to be full, and he learned how to be hungry. He learned how to be you know, abounding in wealth, and, he, and there were times when he was abased or without wealth. And with all this in mind, it's important for us to understand that worldly wealth isn't always the evidence that the Lord is blessing us. Would we make the argument that Paul was somehow lacking faith when his finances were low? I'm not ready to make that argument. 
Is it possible that there were times when the Lord withheld finances from Paul for specific reasons to to bring him to a place of greater faith? Well, of course, uh, that's what James says. Worldly wealth is not always evidence that the Lord is blessing us. Sometimes, you know what? The enemy might give us worldly wealth to distract us. Listen, the world is filled with wealthy people who are, even today, rejecting our Redeemer. I'm not saying all the wealthy people in the world aren't Christian. I'm just saying that there's a lot of very wealthy people who reject Jesus Christ. Are we going to say that their wealth is God's blessing? And at the same time, there are also poor people in the world who are completely relying on the Lord for everything, and their faith is growing every day. That's not to say that all poor people are automatically Christians. But it is to say that you can't say that, you know, a Christian who is poor is probably not walking by faith. They might be walking by more faith than than what we're walking by. That being the case, I encourage you to avoid this delusional sort of thinking that has led many to believe that the abundance of material things is automatic evidence that God is near. It might be the enemy bringing those blessings, right? It might be the devil trying to distract you with with that additional cash. If you find yourself in the middle of a tough trial that leads you to wonder if God is near because you're struggling to pay the bills, listen, I encourage you to remember what James said in James chapter 4. There he declares, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you're struggling and suffering and wondering where God is, listen, God is everywhere. There shouldn't be a question mark about where God is. The question is, where are you? Are you spending time with the Lord every day? Because if you don't feel like you're near to God, who moved? God didn't move. He's everywhere. If you don't feel close to God, then chances are you're the one who moved. So draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you feel like God is a million miles away, then stop complaining about your situation and instead spend your time drawing near to God through prayer and through Bible study, through fellowship, through worship. Let's draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith as we celebrate the salvation that the Lord has provided to those who trust in him. And whether we're rich or whether we're poor, let's simply focus our faith on the fact that the Lord Jesus has promised that he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. In this, we can rejoice regardless of our financial situation. Sadly, Job was struggling to see the silver lining on his situation, and one reason why is because his societal influence had been diminished because of his suffering. And I want to consider how he describes it here in Job chapter 29. If you would look with me, we'll pick up our study uh, beginning at verse 7. Here Job goes on to declare, when I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed. And their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw, then it approved me. 
because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Now here in these verses, we find Job, he's reminiscing about the good old days when he was a man of great influence. For example, it's there in verse 7, where he refers to the days when he would go out to the gates by the city and seeing how the gates of the city, this was the place where honored leaders within the community would make political and judicial decisions regarding situations happening there in the community. And so it seems clear to me here that Job must have been one of those honored leaders who was well-respected there in the land of Uz. Not only that, but according to Job, he seems to have been held in the highest regard amongst all of these people. And and to make my case, notice again, they're beginning at verse 8. There Job declares, the young man saw me and hid. And the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. More simply put, you know, whenever Job arrived there at the city gates, every person, regardless of their age or position, they went out of their way to honor him. And we can be sure that Job enjoyed uh, this season of societal respect. As a matter of fact, uh, let's look again there at verse 11. There again he declares, when the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. In other words, all who heard him would insist that he was blessed with wisdom, and all who saw him there at the city gates would speak well of him. And it's for this reason that he rejoiced. You know, he rejoiced in the influence that he held over his community. He rejoiced in having political power and judicial influence. We find Job describing this influence, beginning there at verse 12, where he declares, I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor and searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. And, and, and to sum all of this up simply, Job was a just judge who was quick to condemn the guilty in defense of the innocent. And, and while it's true that he once enjoyed the prestige of holding this political position Well, it's also true that the people who once honored his name, well, they were the same people who were quick to condemn him after hearing about his situation. In order to prove my point, I'm going to flip forward to the next chapter of this book. If you would look with me there at Job chapter 30, I want to direct your attention to verse 1. There Job declares, now they mock at me. They used to honor me, but now they mock at me. Men younger than I whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Wow, that's rough. From this we can see that the very people who once praised him in the gates of the city were the same people who started mocking him, and for no other reason than because of the situation that he had been suffering. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 21. 
There we learned about those who were gossiping about him as they, ta- uh, as they traveled on the roads to and fro. And from this we can see then that the trial that Job was enduring had caused others to question his good name. They once honored him, now they mock him. Before the, the, the trials and the troubles that, that came upon him, before all of that, they honored him. They respected him. They feared him and revered him. But after the trial, after these troubles, they mocked him. And, and one reason why is because they assumed the, the worst about him. They saw what he was suffering, and much like Job's three friends, they came to the conclusion that Job must be suffering because of some sort of sin, and, and, and so the Lord must be punishing him for his unrepentant sin. And can you just imagine the gossip as they began to speculate about you know, what kind of sins he was guilty of to receive such a, uh, you know, a, a judgment from God? Now, we know that this was not the case. We know that Job... Uh, was blameless in the eyes of the Lord. Job had maintained a sacrificial system so that he offered the right sacrifices for any sins that he was guilty of. He offered sacrifices on behalf of uh, his, his children as well and these sorts of things. We know that, that Job was a just judge. Even the, the people in the community acknowledged this prior to his suffering. Job knew knew that this was all true of himself as well. Like Job knew where he was at with the Lord. And with that being the case, you know, we should take a moment to ask, why would God allow a righteous leader like Job to end up becoming the target of those who love to gossip? And knowing that Job was a just judge who was protecting the innocent by punishing criminals, why did the Lord allow Lucifer then to come and turn Job into this social pariah? Why did the Lord allow all of this? Well, in order to answer this question, I just want to take a moment to remind you of the way in which our Savior was also falsely accused. The religious leaders of Israel accused Jesus of serving Satan. They accused him of sedition. They accused him of breaking the laws of Moses. And they accused him of blasphemy. And at the end of the day, you know, they called for his crucifixion, though he was innocent of every accusation they made. And in light of these things, you know, I can't help but to wonder if the false accusations being made against Job, was this an Old Testament example of the way that our Savior would end up being rejected? Is Job, in in this sense, a type of Christ? Certainly seems like a possibility. But regardless of the reason for why the Almighty was allowing Job to suffer in this sort of way, you know, it's important for us to understand that the desire for the praise of people is actually a snare that could keep us from accomplishing our calling in Christ. You know, Job is looking back to the days when he was held in high regard. He's thinking back to the days and and longing for the days when, you know, people would show him respect and people would, would, uh, you uh, you know, stand in his honor. And it's sad to say that those who make it their aim to achieve and maintain personal popularity, well, they find themselves living in a way that is typically counterproductive to the Great Commission. The reason I say this 
is because if you set out to accomplish the Great Commission by telling people that they're sinners and that they need to be saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, oftentimes you're going to lose a lot of friends. Just go start posting Bible verses, controversial, hard-to-hear Bible verses on your social media platforms and see how many friends you start losing. A lot of Christians won't do it. They're not willing to lose the likes. They're not willing to lose the followers. And so they'll post about business things, and they'll talk about secular things, and they'll do all these sorts of things, but they won't talk about Jesus on social media because they don't want to lose fans, they don't want to lose followers, they don't want to miss out on likes. If you find yourself living for personal popularity, then you'll oftentimes make decisions that are counterproductive to the Great Commission because you don't want to lose the popularity. And with that, I just want to remind you of something the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. It's verse 26 where he declares this. He says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Christian, listen, those who are living for the approval of people, those who are people pleasers, they find themselves making many decisions that are in conflict with the will of God. And those who are completely concerned about their own personal popularity, they're typically trying to please people rather than living in such a way that pleases the Lord. Now, if this sounds like your situation, I just encourage you to remember that you know Christians haven't been called to live for the applause of people. We have not been called to live for the applause of people. We haven't been called to live for the likes. We haven't been called to live for the thumbs-ups. We've been called to live for the Lord, to serve our Savior. And yes, even if this results in the mockery that comes from those who are rejecting our Messiah. It's also important for us to remember that the Lord isn't subject to our five-year plan. To explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention back to Job chapter 29. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 18. There Job declares, Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me and my bow is renewed in my hand. From this, uh, we see that Job here is thinking back to the days when he had this incredible plan for his life. Job was not only investing in his political position there in the land of Uz, but he, he also had a plan to establish his roots there in this area. And listen, he not only planned to personally live a very long life, you know, to, to as he puts it, multiply his days as the sand... But he also had, you know, financial plans. He had familial goals. You know, he had this big idea and this dream of how his life is going to turn out and he's going to die in a ripe old age in the nest that he created there in Uz. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered these verses. They put it like this. I thought, surely I will die surrounded by my family after a long, good life. For I am like a tree whose roots reach the water, whose branches are refreshed with the dew. New honors are constantly bestowed on me, and my strength is continually renewed. Fast forward a few years, womp, 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 not so much. 
Job had goals for his life, including you know, the, the large family and established finances and, and property and cattle and all the things that he acquired. But then came the day when he realized that God's not subject to our earthly plans. You, know, you can have your five-year plan. You can have your lifelong plan. But God doesn't have to get on your page. God doesn't have to help you make all of that happen. And as we consider Job's situation, it's important for us to remember you know, that Job was a just man. Job was a man who was walking by faith. And it would have been nothing for the Lord to honor his plans, and yet he didn't. And in light of his situation, it's crucial for Christians to realize that all of our earthly goals can be easily altered by the perfect plans of the Lord. I like the way that James explains this in James chapter 4. It's there where he declares, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is, notice, evil. All such boasting is evil. Christian, we do well to realize that the Lord has the right and the authority and even the power to disrupt all of our future plans. And he can do it tomorrow. That being the case, it's also important for us to remember that the disruptions that the Lord allows, even ordains, they're designed to direct us back into his perfect will. I know that's hard to hear because we get our hearts set on certain things and we think this has got to be the way it works out and the Lord is going to bless this and then he doesn't. And then we start getting upset with God. So, so God's wrong for allowing your plans to get disrupted? God's the one who made a mistake? I don't think so. Rather than getting upset when things don't go our way, we ought to rejoice in knowing that the Lord loves us and is probably protecting us from our greatest mistake. It's very possible that when the Lord gets in and disrupts your plan that he's actually saving you from your greatest mistake. You just can't see it. I'm sure we all believe that the plans that we have for our own future are perfect. And yet we don't even know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. It'll probably be me talking more, but, but we don't know. We have no clue about tomorrow. And yet we make all these plans like we've got it all figured out. And James says it's arrogance. It's arrogant to believe that we've got the future figured out. We're often blinded by the arrogance of our aspirations and, and the ego, the evil ego that drives our expectations. And then, you know, that, those expectations include God making sure that all of our plans work out in our favor. 
Thankfully for us, the Lord loves us too much to let us go down the road of our greatest mistakes. And, and he's the omniscient one who actually can see how things all turn out. And it's with this foreknowledge that he's also able to intervene with interruptive situations that we often perceive to be disruptions when in reality it's God just getting us back on the right track. Rather than grumbling about these disruptions, we ought to remember that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're currently watching your five-year plan falling apart, don't get upset. Instead, just realize that God's got a plan for you and he's going to help you to, to figure that out. But we need to be flexible. Pastor Chuck always said it. Blessed are the flexible, for they will not be broken. We need to be flexible. And we need to realize that God knows the future in advance and he's able to guide us onto his perfect path. We just need to be ready to submit when we plan on taking a right and he wants to go, us to go left. Nah, God, God never wants us to go left. He always wants us to go right. But being ready to, to be flexible when God disrupts our plans to, and, and realize that this is probably him protecting us from our greatest mistakes. Therefore, we should count it all joy when we fall into these trials and, and, and tribulations, realizing that the Lord uses these sorts of trials to perfect us. And listen, this is still true even if everyone we know turns away from the truth and turns their back on us. Now, with this as the focus... I want to consider the final paragraph of this chapter. If you would look with me here at Job chapter 29, we'll begin reading at verse 21. Here Job declares, Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. Ah, yes, mountain dew. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide. As for the spring rain, if I mocked at them, they did not believe it. In the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army and as one who comforts mourners. Now here in the final chapter, uh, verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's once again referring to the days when he had influence over others. This not only included the political power of judicial judgments that occurred there at the gate of the city, but this also included the influence that occurs when people seek the sage wisdom of wise counselors. Before the enemy attacked the house of Job, he was actually seen as the chief of his region who was able to then provide correct counsel to those who needed it. And so you could see Job then serving as a counselor to, to others who were looking for wisdom. And it looks like he even played a part in the military there in this region, providing comfort and counsel to those who were mourning. And, and so he was seen as some sort of spiritual leader as well. But then came the day when the Lord allowed the enemy to test the faith of Job. And it was at that point in time when the people stopped seeking his counsel. They stopped seeing him as a spiritual leader, as a, as a counselor and a comforter. The reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that they jumped to the wrong conclusion 
about Job's situation. They jumped to the conclusion that Job was some sort of scoundrel who was suffering for his sins. Not only that, but I'll remind you, it's in the first verse of the next chapter where then Job goes on to inform us that they now mock at me, men younger than I. In other words, the public opinion polls about Job had shifted. His former fans jumped on the wrong bandwagon after drawing the wrong conclusions about his situation. And listen, there will be times when the Lord allows us to suffer certain situations that could cause others to judge us with unrighteous judgments. There are times when the people of God find themselves in the middle of a situation and and while there's no guilt on their part, others were brought to the wrong conclusion about that individual. And if this sounds like your situation, then I encourage you to remember that the Lord Jesus suffered in the same sort of way. I'll remind you, it's in John chapter 15. There the Lord Jesus declares, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. As we consider the point that the Lord Jesus was making here, I just want to take a moment to remind you that our Savior never sinned against anyone. Our Savior Jesus never sinned against anyone. And with that being the case, he never gave a single person any reason to hate him. And yet, much like Job, many hated our Messiah and without cause. The people who turned away from Job, they didn't have a real reason to question his integrity. And those who turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ, those who accused him of being demon-possessed, those who accused him of being a wine-bibber, those who accused him you know, of, of being seditious and a lawbreaker, you know, they had no real reason for making those judgments and, and for arriving at those conclusions about Christ Jesus. And yet they did. In similar fashion, there's going to be times when we are also hated. That's what Jesus says. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And, and trust me when I tell you that, you know, when, when people hate me, I've probably given them all the reasons to do so. You know, I'm not sinless like Jesus was. I've given people reason to, to not like me. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And I'm sure that we all have, at some point in time in our lives, given others a reason to be upset with us. God help us to become better believers who aren't pushing people away. But listen, there are going to be times when people arrive at the, at the wrong conclusions about us. They jump to conclusions based on the situation that we find ourselves in, and they begin to hate us, and maybe for no other reason than because we're serving our Savior in the way that he's called us to serve him. And there will be those who judge us with unrighteous judgment simply because they don't understand the situation that we find ourselves in. Much like Job, they might look at our lives and think, oh, they're, they're poor because they're sinning, or, or they're sick because they're sinning, and these sorts of things, when that's not the case at all. 
And if this sounds like a situation that you find yourself in the middle of, then I encourage you to remember that we've been called to love our enemies. Those people who judge us with unrighteous judgment, we've been called to love them. We've been called to pray for those who persecute us. And I like the way that Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 5. It's there where he declares, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Christian, listen, we haven't been called to respond to our haters with hate. We've been called to react to those who are gossiping about us in a way that would be loving. If someone's gossiping about you, it's not your job to then turn around and gossip about them. If somebody is is falsely accusing you of things, it's not your job to then turn around and falsely accuse them. We've instead, instead called to be a blessing to those who abuse us. And we've been called to love those who hate us. I realize that this is easier said than done. And listen, the Lord is calling us to achieve something that is not natural to our fallen flesh. And it's for this reason that I want to remind you in closing that we must walk in the power of the Spirit. Because this is the only way that we can bear the spiritual fruit of love. In order to love our enemies, we have to walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we're empowered by the power of the Spirit so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love. In the weakness of our flesh, we will follow in the footsteps of Job as we look backwards at the days gone by when things were better and, and as we reminisce, you know, and, and remember the days when people actually liked us, but now they've turned their backs on us because they're judging us. And, 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 and in the flesh, what, what do we want to do? Complain and, and grumble and gossip and these sorts of things. That's what our flesh will produce. But Jesus says, no, love them. Those who turn their back on you, those who judge you, with unrighteous judgment, those who abuse you and gossip about you and persecute you, Jesus says, love them. And I say, I can't. And and Jesus says, right, you can't, but I can through you. So walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but instead we will bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. With that, I just encourage you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can learn how to love our enemies with the perfect love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, we will help them to see the love of the Lord in our lives. And as they see the love of the Lord in our lives, well, then chances are they'll want to know the Lord who enables us to love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word.